Hey, troublemakers, got a huge, huge surprise for you guys today. Um, you may not have known because we didn't tell anybody, but we went on the Canadian broadcast on Belief a few weeks ago, maybe over a month ago, with the amazing Karen Geyer. And normally, uh, she has a subscription-based podcast, um, and normally you can just binge away at her 17-minute free episodes, or you can pay $5 a month for all access which is what I do personally. And so I do totally recommend that. Um, but, uh, we're not trying to sell you anything. So go binge away on her free content and you'll see why, or you may just get it after this first episode. So, um, even though normally one would have to pay for a subscription to listen to a full episode, Karen and her unbelief base are allies of ours. So they've given us full exclusive access to our own episode. So what you're going to hear is not the 17 minute freebie that the rest of the world is going to hear, uh, that isn't already subscribed to Karen. You're actually going to hear the full episode. Consider it unlocked for you guys. Um, and so we're super stoked to share this with you. We really hope you vibe it. And if you would do us a solid, you know, we're not asking you to ever buy any of the books with the authors that we talk to. This isn't, we're not QVC guys, right? Um, but I personally am a Patreon of Karen. I listened to Karen before I could afford to be a Patreon $5 a month. That doesn't seem too expensive, but this is the world we live in. Okay. So, um, but we would really, really appreciate if you would hop on Twitter, uh, on belief pod, uh, is the handle for social medias for the On Belief podcast. She's also got an On Grief podcast, and I think that applies to a lot of you guys too. But please go give her some love. Let her know what you thought about the episode. Um, you know, let her know what you thought about how she handled this really sensitive topic for you guys. And definitely check out the other freebie episodes. Uh, you can do it. It's onbelief.fireside.fm. Um, you get 17 minutes of each episode, and there's two seasons out there so far. So the cults that we're all obsessed with, she's probably covered it each one, like at least once at this point. Right. So pretty exciting. So, um, yeah, please give her some love. Like we really appreciate it. Um, we just, we are going on wherever we can to scream as loud as we can, all of our truth. Right. Um, but for it to be with an ally like Karen and then to get, uh, permission to share this with you, uh, without anybody having to, uh, you know, hop on our Patreon. Like we really appreciate that. So let's give her some love. Um, you know, obviously super cool. If you do join her Patreon, let her know this is how, cause like, cool. Um, but yeah, just hop on Twitter and let her know what you thought. We don't think you'll hate this, but if you do, like, can you just hop on Twitter at us instead of Karen? That'd be really cool. Okay. All right. Bye guys. Enjoy. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 27, The Troubled Teen Industry. It's a treatment that goes by many names. Scared Straight, Boot Camp, Encounter Group, Reform School... But what it is, is an ecosystem of what we call the troubled teen industry. It is a for-profit initiative by private individuals often using government funds in very many cases to quote-unquote assist youth in overcoming obstacles in their lives such as prior trauma, psychological disorders, 
substance abuse, and more. Here to talk more about their time in the troubled teen industry and their new podcast all about it are my guests, Meredith Yunuzi and Miranda Sullivan. Welcome, ladies. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, and if you could please describe for me what constitutes the troubled teen industry. The troubled teen industry is going to be a consolidated network. It's pretty complex of like boot camps, therapeutic boarding schools, a lot of what we're going to call like teen rehabs. And the troubled teen industry, uh, mostly what we include when we talk about it are those abusive versions of the institutions. And it's a $2 billion a year industry here in the U.S. Um, And it really began in the 70s. And for your listeners specifically, it is, you know, debatably cult spawned from the Church of Synanon, which started in the 50s in California. Most of these institutions are private, but some of them appear to be state run. So how does that work? When we talk about TTI, we're mostly talking about private for profit institutions but it is going to expand to like mental institutions and substance abuse programs that are government run and funded and definitely funded either way. The SEED, which was arguably the first troubled teen program, which totally functioned on like the Synanon tactics and then eventually like spawned straight and kids. It actually started on a government grant in Florida in like the 1970s. So these are really strong ties. So Usually when you go see a therapist, they have a tradition of therapy that they follow. What is the basis of therapy that is employed in these groups or in these institutions? You guys remember when AA started, it was focused very specifically towards alcoholics. And so in the 1940s, you have Chuck E.D., um, Chuck E. Diedrich, really, who uh, became like the biggest, E-do. coolest. Sin- huh? He do. That's his like moniker. Well, yeah. So in the 70s, when they start making programs for teens, CDU is named after him. So it's like the Charles E. Dietrich University. Um, but yeah, I actually was reading up more about, about more about this. There's a really great article from the L.A. magazine. Um, if anyone wants to look it up um, by Hillel Aaron called the story of this drug rehab turned violent cult. But yes, and that's kind of where a lot of these programs came out of this philosophy, but you take it from there, Miranda. Well, if we're plugging articles, then let's definitely add in there Maya Salovitz's um, The Cult That Spawned Tough Love with Mother yeah. Jones. And so that'll go through the history of Synanon, through Sidu and all of these. But as far as the tactics, they're initially AA-based. And then, uh, you know, the game is their big thing. So that's what we like call attack therapy. These are encounter groups. So a typical encounter group uh you're gonna pull me up in front of you, you're gonna tell me you know Miranda you're such a dirty stupid fucking whore and you know because your parents didn't love you because you aren't worth loving obviously that's why you would suck any dick in here for like a hit of weed right now you know <laughs> and if seriously this is exactly how it would go and if you don't get serious and honest with yourself right now you're gonna die alone on the streets raped like you deserve and everybody would go one by one with their own variations of this until I broke down emotionally enough to accept this about myself. And these encounter groups, the game, uh, they really attracted people like Bridget Fonda and Natalie Woods. And they were actually broadcast on public radio at the time in California. And they could last 
last as long as like literally 72 hours. People who've listened to this show before will remember that the group that shall not be named is one that uses attack therapy to shame people on stage. Well, yeah. Well, you know, the I, the fun part is not only does the government fund seed, right, in 1971, but in 1973, they also wind up investigating seed. And a lot of these other programs, like Meredith mentioned, I think I think CEDU might have already been around at that point, right? Um, and they find them to have tactics like North Korean brainwashing camps. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of like uh, took a look out at the book, you know. So the crazy thing is, is that like um, the reason why it's called Synanon is because this guy. Um, Chucky D. That's my yeah, thing with him now. Basically. That's what we should do. Um, he started these seminars. So he was in like a community recovery program. Basically, he started he went off on his own and started having these like um like seminar anonymous cinema seminars so like sin like an sin anon like seminar anonymous cinema sem seminars so synanon and so and and the funny thing is like after he like really you know uh he was getting popular it started out in los angeles you know everybody the cults are great for people out there it seems to be like a breeding ground for that for that kind of thing so but then the government started being like, uh, you know, doing much like they do today and be like, you know, these alcoholics who would get drunk off their ass and do something crazy, you know, they get cited, they get in, thrown in front of a judge and they would be like, well, you could go to jail for a year or you could go to, to uh, Mr. Chucky D and go to his synanon. And and literally the government was sending like the ju judges were sending these kids or whoever they were to him and you know they'd become part of the cult and become you know brainwashed by it and that's like that that's the very beginnings of this whole entire industry so describe for me what kinds of kids get sent to these institutions because it seems like oh only the worst kids only the you know the most criminal minded children get sent there it doesn't really appear to be the case though uh, me and Miranda. <laughs> Miranda and I didn't like. We I, did. Um, <laughs> I didn't touch a drug. I had maybe one sip of alcohol. And I was a virgin. I had never. The I did do some crazy things because I got into trouble with some bad kids. Um, the one like probably the worst thing I ever did was I had my one best friend who was like my only friend <laughs> in, in middle school. I she convinced me. And I let her uh, to take my mom's keys, steal her car. And uh, I, I at first was like, no, this is probably not a good idea. We're 12. We don't know how to drive. And she was like, oh, no, we did it. Like at my grandmother's, I've driven her car a million times. And I'm like, I was bullied and pressured into doing it. Um, let her drive my mother's car. And she crashed my mother's car into someone else's car. I was mortified, didn't know what to do. She was crying on the ground outside my home. I immediately just was like, well, I don't know how we get away with crashing my mother's car. I'm just going to go and tell her. Now, because I had, you know, troubles in the past and I had been on medications and been institutionalized in, um, you know, before uh, in psych wards and you know, was not, you know, was kind of um, the cops were called by my mother a few times. I was the one who was prosecuted and had to go get my fingerprints and had to be put on something that they called like youth probation. Even though I never sat in the driver's seat and never 
Like all I did was give her the keys to my mother's car. And that was probably the worst thing I ever did. My mother was really like concerned about that. She was like, that was, I think the worst thing I ever did before I got sent to the family pool. Like I just had a host of emotional problems and emotional issues due to like some other kinds of traumas that happened when I was younger. Um, Like my parents' divorce, things of that nature. So the kinds of kids that get sent here aren't just the kids who break into, you know, do something bad, get, they're high on drugs, they're drug addicted, they're alcoholics. They're, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like a national problem that these parents who, in my opinion, this is not a generalized opinion, uh, don't like really know how to raise children. They shouldn't have had children in the first place. I firmly believe that about my parents. They can't handle a kid who has some issues, mental, emotional, you know, or kind of personality issues. You know, they don't get along with kids very well. I don't know. And they just, you know, end up not being able to handle that emotionally. They have their own mental health issues to work with, which is something my mother has always dealt with. And I didn't know till after. So it's like not just these hardcore kids that are getting drunk and getting arrested. It's regular kids that are just having a hard time being a kid getting sent to these programs. There was a woman on the doctors doing a segment on the TTI industry and she had sent her son to this wilderness camp. Um, and she testified because the kid actually died at this wilderness boot camp. She had sent him there because he lacked confidence. He lacked confidence. He's a, she, she testified on the, on CBS, on the doctor saying that he was a great kid. He always listened to me, did good in school, blah, blah, blah. He lacked confidence. This is the kind of emergency that we have that parents think that they can just, you know, send their kid to these, uh, these programs. I mean, her kid actually died because she wanted him to gain some confidence. I think If you want your kid to gain some confidence, maybe you should be responsible as a parent and give the kid some confidence yourself. So, you know, I don't think that like sending him to a military style wilderness camp where the dangers are so prevalent because they're not a lot of these programs are not regulated that I I just don't think that that that's not an option for me. That's not just me coming from a survivor's perspective. That's me as a person. So to answer your question, yes, like normal, otherwise normal kids are getting sent to these places quite often. So we're talking about what, you know, what people used to say were goths or, you know, depressed kids or kids that just have a hard time fitting in. And unfortunately, what we're also talking about is 12 year old kids with ADHD or what we're seeing is like a high amount of adopted kids being like these parents then abdicate responsibility and send them to the program until they go to college. Or we're also looking at currently there's this girl who all five or six of her siblings were sent to Agape, um, Circle of Hope, Refuge for Girls and a bunch of other programs. And she's mentally disabled. So her adoptive parents uh, literally legally signed her over for life to this program. So she's been there for 14 years now. And without advocacy from the general community, she will literally never leave. My understanding is that there's two ways that you end up in one of these types of places. So either your parents put you there against your will, or you get sent there as a result of a court order. In both cases, you have zero recourse legally. 
and you're a minor, so you can't and you can't legally leave until you're 18. Um, and if you were to try to leave one of these places, much like the school Miranda and I went to, you would be brought back by the local police, other, you know, and you were so isolated, you know, anyway, where we were, we were very isolated. I think the town, we were seven miles from the closest town up a steep, steep ma- uh, mountain in the Catskills. And the, co- the townspeople would be like, we know you're from that crazy, you know, school up there. They would just bring you back. But yeah, there was no, there was no legal recourse unless you had an advocate, like someone who was willing, like another family member, maybe, I don't know. There is literally no recourse for these kids. The goal of most of these places is either to keep your kid from dying by suicide or keep your kid off drugs or to keep your kid out of jail. How effective are these places at accomplishing those goals? Well, there is no science to support that they're effective at all, but there is GAO reports, psychology reports, and things of that nature that have documented how not only ineffective, but permanently damaging behavioral modification is, like, on children. I think Paul Morantz, right, um, tried to do a study of this or something. I, I, I have to, we have to cite the articles, but there really is no, you know, kind of study that says that it's effective at all. I think I was reading something the other day that said there was more kids that, like, there were more kids that came out of it dying you know and going right back to drugs or going right back to their previous behavior than there were that actually like stayed sober or stayed out of trouble or just you know were successful I mean I don't know the statistics I would really have to um look that up well we don't have any statistics right so we don't have statistics on how many children have been in programs have been harmed in programs, how many programs there are. And that's what the whole GAO with Congress in the U.S. in 2008 was about. They did an investigation for a year, and all these congressional testimonies are on the YouTubes, guys. Um, and then the GAO brought their report to Congress and questioned NATSAP, uh, which our school was a founding member of NATSAP. And they told Congress in the U.S. that we needed oversight regulations and just basic access to information because we can just make up numbers and ideas about how it's working. But like we have we literally there's no science. So, mm-hmm. I mean. I mean, there was a guy, well, like I said, Paul Morantz, um, he tried to do he was a journalist. Um, Paul Morantz is an attorney. Paul Morantz. Yeah, he's a journalist turned lawyer. and. Um, like he tried to um write about the group. I guess he sued them or something on behalf of these two this couple. But then like he I think he was writing articles and like investigating these kinds of programs in the early in the 70s. And the man like got Synanon went after him and like at one point there was like a snake in his mailbox that like, you know, he ended up in the hospital and it's like, you know, these these guys are I mean, there's a lot of money in this. There's there's a lot of, um, you know, so it's, um, that's the kind of thing that we're up against. So these places are not effective at keeping kids off of drugs? Well, no. what it is effective at is if your kid is not already a hardcore drug addict and already hasn't tried drugs. If you, we have science to show 
that if you take someone with no drug exposure, or little drug exposure and experience and put them in a situation where their entire in-group and what we're looking at here is a peer group, right? And especially if they're in there for years, their entire high school experience, where everyone around them is a perceived in some way delinquent and the majority of kids around them or a great part of the population are very experienced and exposed to drugs. And every day we're talking about drugs and sex and all of these things, then when they leave that experience, like their social norms have changed. The kind of people they're comfortable associating with and relating to that has changed and their actual real world in world contacts are completely different now. So the chances of your kid becoming a drug addict or engaging in risky behavior or associating with those kids you don't want them associate with and like after the programs, like that's the risk you're taking. And there is science to support that that like, and so there is more risk in that respect. How easy was it for somebody inside one of these places to get their hands on drugs or alcohol? Oh, no, no, that was like totally not happening. But, you know, all of the conversations that we're having are about drugs, alcohol and sex, you know. Um, So but no, absolutely not. I don't think that that's going on in these programs. These kids like to be very clear, like you can't even make eye contact with people you're not allowed to make eye contact with. And I assure you, most of these kids aren't even taking the risk to look up when they're not supposed to. Yeah. No, that just the the consequences of even like at our school, we weren't allowed to really interact with the opposite sex. It was depending on how well you were doing there, how much contact you had with them. But yeah, there was no, I mean, you literally kind of went into a prison where, you know, your prison guards were the staff members and you just weren't like, you know, it was very strict rules. And imagine having like all like going into a prison and all the other prisoners are also your prison guards. Like they're all indoctrinated and also like some of them, not maybe not all, but you know, you're like set into this situation where you really have to, you have to abide by those rules or you, or there's punishments. And some of it's, some of it's very cruel punishment, um, getting locked up into a small hole where you couldn't even leave to go to the bathroom. So what were the rules at the place that you were sent? So every program is going to have an evolution. So all these programs in the 70s, 80s, like really scary physical jazz, 90s as well. So in the 90s in the family school, All throughout the day, in any room you're in, you're going to likely see someone get tackled by five 200-pound, like, ex-biker, ex-addict dudes, restrained, rolled up into a carpet, duct tape in in that carpet, uh, thrown, uh, hopefully lying down in the back of a room where other kids are watching you, or in a closet, left for um, Liz, uh, one of our you know, BFFs as far as she's amazing and we hope we grow up to be just like her. She was in a carpet, duct taped, uh, urinating on herself, wound up with a urinary tract infection after like eight days. So, So that was a normal, everyday, minimal kind of a situation. When we're at the family school, punishments, I mean, sanction, regular sanctions, a blackout is a regular sanction, right? So that means that you can't interact with, acknowledge, or whatever this ver- like this part of the demographic. So if I'm on blackout with boys, they don't exist to me. Um, you can be 
on uh, isolation uh, in isolation rooms like Meredith was uh, talking about where you're locked in a room for weeks, months, whatever, urinating on yourself, very little food, no social interaction, things that have been deemed torture for adults in the United States where we are. You can go on exile, which I personally thought was psychologically horrifying where everyone, the 300 or 200 people in your world or however many pretend you don't exist for potentially months at a time. There's always work sanctions at all of these programs. That's really standard. Meredith? Work sanction, I, for me, I, I, had, um, I had a lot of punishment. I started out my first month, actually maybe my first two months, I got put on a work sanction, which is basically like strict manual labor. A lot of it was me just like carrying rocks, like a bucket of rocks up a hill, like just doing other tasks that the school needed, shoveling pig shit. Um, literally in the summer, we would have pigs get delivered in each um, of our uh, quote unquote families. This is how we were divvied up would have a pig to feed and we'd have to shovel their shit and take care of the pig, feed it. And we'd have to like, it was just a lot of manual labor, digging holes for whatever, you know, reason. I was on standing in the corner, which sounds funny, but you, if you did something wrong, you lied about something um, or whatever, whatever punishment, sometimes you would get sent to the corner. So you couldn't like at that point exist with the rest of the population of the school. You would have to eat all of your meals facing a wall. You would have to uh, sit apart at every, you know, in school, in whatever, wherever you were. And sometimes, though, if the punishment was extra hard, you had to stand in the corner. So you had to stand for almost 24 hours a day um, other than sleeping. There was one part of it where at the end of at the last 10 minutes of every hour you could sit. But you're basically just, you know, you have to stand in class at your desk. You just have to stand next to your desk. You have to stand and eat your meals. I was on exile. I was on exile for close to two months, I believe. And I was standing at one point that I was um, on exile and you have to stand on exile. You cannot sit. And I was out actually out there in like negative, like below 30 degree weather, like standing on a porch. I had a winter coat on, but like when you're out there for hours, that doesn't matter. You're eating alternative food. Sometimes when you're, when you have a punishment, you're eating just like a tuna sandwich for dinner or a soy burger. Frozen. Yeah, just like a frozen heating up soy burger on an English muffin. But more or it would than- be straight frozen. Like, I just want to clarify, though, we had there was a frozen soy burger sanction, so they would not heat it. And yeah, a kid yeah, escaped from our school while Meredith and I were there and got before a judge when he escaped he got caught by cops and he was like they're making me eat frozen soy burgers for like two months and so the judge was like that is inhumane and so that began like the inquiries into our school at our time I feel like I feel like those punishments weren't even as bad as the emotional shaming I think that's the of course thing that not. I'm, I, I'm most scarred by the um, I was incredibly overweight when I was a kid because I was like thrown on all these medications when I was nine years old and I just gained a bunch of weight. So the first thing I got when I got to the family school was that was the concern of theirs. They were like, we're going to make you lose weight. So you're going to eat all half portions at all meals, no snacks, no nothing. You're going to run 20 laps every meal around our main house, which was like where all the families lived. And I just remember getting up there after I had lost like a hundred pounds, like a year into my stay. And, um, there's this one particular staff member that would bring me up at the table and be like, why aren't you losing more weight? And I'm like, he's like, you must be stealing food. You're like, you're not losing more weight. Like, and I'm already there. My clothes are like, like, I look like a 
puff it. I'm like, my clothes are already don't fit me. They're like three sizes too big because I had lost so much weight already. It was just insane to me to be like, how, how do I just, how do I like tell my body to lose more? Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, there were girls that would get up there and just be called straight sluts. Just be like, you know, you're dreaming of having sex every night. Or they would just be like publicly shamed, you know, about every little insecurity that you had, you know, that your parents sent you there for. And so it was just like, that to me was the the most cruel punishment. So what kind of rules could you break to get some of these somewhat severe punishments? What wasn't a rule? Well, I mean, you didn't have to break a rule because when you first get there, you're going to go through, and I think this is with most of the... It could be something so, like, if somebody thought you were lying to them, like when I, like, for example, when I would get up and they would be like, you're not losing weight. What are you eating? And I'd be, and I would say, I'm not eating anything. And they'd be like, you're lying to me. Go sit in the corner. Like it didn't, it could be an imaginary, just, I don't believe you. There was no, you didn't have to break a rule to get a punishment. Somebody could just not like you, which happened to me a lot. People, they would say to me, um, I was so kind of droopy because the, the drugs I was on would make me like, I just didn't have control of my body. I bumped into a lot of people and I noticed it. I would be like, wow, I'm like bumping into this wall. I'm bumping into this person. They would talk to me about it. They'd be like, you're bumping into so many people. And at the time I'm like, well, I don't know. Like I, I'm 14. I'm uh, no, I was 16. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, but at like years later, I realized I was drugged up on liquid lithium and Depakote. And these are like psychotic drugs you should only give to people with schizophrenia. And I realized I didn't have control of like my bodily functions. I would, you know, I was a zombie on those drugs. Of course, I probably acted like one and bumped into a bunch of pe- people because I didn't have control of my of my body. And that could that could easily get me in trouble. <laughs> Something as, as frivolous as that. So if I may, when earlier when Meredith was talking about the worst aspects, when she was talking about getting up and the public shaming, what she's referring to, like with the Synanon encounter groups in the game are the house or the family topics. So every meal at the family school, you would have multiple kids be called up to the front of the table, which is this U-shaped table. There's eight families. There's 30 kids, half boys, half girls, maybe five adults. And you stand in front of the U. And this is where they tell you, they do, they reenact this game, right? And they did this stuff that Meredith is talking about. And so as far as what you need to do to get in trouble, when you first go into these programs, in order to indoctrinate you and make you compliant, they have to give you this first step. And they would always frame it at our program from this AA concept, but they actually have to break teenagers, obviously, who are like, no, I don't want to be here. I don't need to be here. This doesn't apply to me. I'm not going to do this. They have to break them. And so they're going to send you through. Everybody goes usually through the same kinds of programs, some more regularly or serious than others, where you're going on work sanction, you're going in the corner and you're doing all these things until you fully submit. Because unless they can get this, like, mostly the school is teenagers who are already like rebellious potentially, um, although most of them are just emotionally vulnerable and either have like not the best parents or got caught up in the system in some way. You know, you can't get them to, you know, drink the Kool-Aid without breaking their will initially. So in your opinion, how many of the kids that you were there with 
were just maybe suffering from prior traumas that hadn't been addressed with therapy. I think every one of them had emotional trauma that wasn't being treated. I, yeah, I, I, I do think that there were some kids there that really did have uh, addic- problems with addiction, drugs, alcohol, sex. But I like th- like there was a pretty mixed bag of that, I believe. Um, I, yeah, there, I, but I do want to say there, there were kids there that really struggled with with drugs and alcohol. There were, there were some there, but that was, so I would say that was like 20 to 30% of the population actually had a potential drug problem, not exposure to drugs, but at the time that they got sent to the school, maybe they were doing a bunch of Oxycontin. Maybe we had girls in our family who were on sports teams who got injuries that were prescribed these drugs. And then their life just spiraled out of control. We also had people who grew up in the wrong side of town. Um, started drugs, you know, early or had gang affiliations. Like that's definitely part of it because they don't all get sent by their parents who are fed up. Some of them get sent because they're in the foster system and there's no better place or they broke a crime or yeah. broke a crime. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. I would say that at least 50% of the kids when we were there, they genuinely did not need to be there. They weren't bad kids. They were um, a mixed bag of coming from religious homes who didn't know how to deal with blue hair or black lipstick or someone asking why, or they were coming from homes where there was a recent divorce and there's a new step parent and they don't want this teenager here who's got all this baggage or a parent recently died or grandparents have custody of the kids and they're sending them all together. You know, um, most of it was that. I I think a lot of the kids I saw there uh, just genuinely needed a good space to be and their families or whoever had custody of them was like not like cut out for parenting. Yeah, uh, though that 20% to 30% of those kids with the like with that had serious drug problems, it was like go to juvie for two years or go to this school. That was like yeah. a choice they had. In the moment, if you have to choose between going to jail essentially and going to one of these institutions, the institution probably looks better on paper in the moment. Oh, yeah. But everybody who went to both was like prison was better, number one. And you're totally right. The brochure on the family school, like Meredith, she'll she'll tell you she got sucked into the choir and the pictures. It had lakes and horseback riding, you know, and musical show choirs. And it's a beautiful campus. It really is. It's in the mountains, totally secluded, surrounded by hunting grounds. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I actually think that, like, on the outside looking in, like, you're seeing these beautiful mountains and the colors. And I think that that brings up another point of how um, a lot of our parents are victims in this, too, because criminal false marketing. You guys, this is like criminally false. marketed. like there have been, you know, I just think our parents in many ways were duped as well. Because they just didn't get shown the side when they did come to visit of, like, like the really bad stuff. Like, the really, just the inhumane shame of it all. I think, I, I also think, like, as a society, we've kind of moved forward from that. Because I think, you know, with the way my parents were raised, where you were raised with the, the fear of God in you, you know, that you were going to go to hell if you had sex before marriage. You know, and I think so some of that shaming and some of that kind of those shame tactics, I think, were acceptable in our society for many years. Um, even though I think these programs take it to another level. Uh, but I think that was kind of also this acceptable form of therapy of you know, you're going to go to hell if, if you have sex and do drugs and these kinds of things. Um, uh, so I think like my parents, when they must have saw a table topic, you know, must have been like, well, OK, that's kind of 
weird, but you know, well, it's therapy. Well, I mean, you know, the PTSD from that alone um, is just not something that I think you can fathom, especially I remember like when parents and people would come to visit, um, the, the table topics were really like, they were they mild. Were, they were, they were mild. usually they like, were like, congratulations, you're yeah. out of the corner. You've been doing so great. And then the kids right. would be like, we're so proud of you. Yeah, you're working I, the program and everyone would cheer. And these parents would be like, this is great. Yeah. It would just be so like, um, congratulatory and like, you know, all the good topics and, um, all the good shiny fun stuff. And, um, you know, it just, I never recall, I never recall any of that bad stuff happening. The really shameful shit. Um, when your parents or other potential parents sending their kids there would come to, to look at the school. I just, yeah. No, I promise you there was no outsider in the room when I was 17 and told what a dirty, stupid lying cunt I was. There was, everyone there was already part of it. So is this group encounter therapy the only therapy that you would have had access to while you were there? Or were there, or was there one-on-one therapy as well? Oh, God, no, there was no, no, there was no one-on-ones. Unless you were, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. There were one-on-ones if uh, you were specifically <laughs> targeted by someone. Um, I had one where this gentleman told me that he'd spoken with my father and to keep me from dying of alcoholism, they were going to basically waterboard like whiskey down my throat. And I was like, okay, this is cool. But it was only one time in this one room with this guy at that kind of a program. I, so there was, um, the, the family school took a lot of their quote unquote therapy from AA. So in AA, you have a sponsor and you know, when you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to the bar. They say, nope, call your sponsor. So this was kind of like, totally. you did this work with, um, you were assigned a staff member they were your sponsor, quote unquote, and you would do this work. Um, you do all the 12 steps with them. So that was like your therapy. You know, you'd get up and check in with the family, especially if you were new and you were working on your first and second step, which is admitting you have a problem. And then what is it like writing an honesty list about it or something? I forget. It's I'm so put that out of my mind. But this is the kind of therapy, quote unquote, that they did. There was really no other kind of like let's have a group therapy and talk about our problems like the shit you see on tv like or there was no like one-on-one with a therapist I don't even think these people I think there was one licensed social worker on staff and I only know that is because I was in the food group (laughs) because I had weight issues and uh she was actually like one of the only ones that I knew who was uh licensed but um Yeah, it was really, it was done one-on-one, but it was not the kind of therapy that you think of today. This was like, you know. Right. um, Well, your sponsor is just someone who used to be a drug addict who worked through the program and now they're an adult sponsor. And so that's right. Okay. There was that you work through the steps. So fourth step is, is what Meredith was alluding to, where you literally write out a list of every lie you ever told as a kid, every Snickers bar you ever stole as a kid. And then for people unlike Meredith, you know, who you know, Meredith is a virgin at this time, um, I had to like calculate and think of all the times I'd, you know, given my boyfriend a blowjob in the back of his car. You know, like I know it was at least three MSI concerts, but like where else? And like, how am I supposed to know? I dated him for six months, you know? Um, and I had to do that and it was never enough. And then you're going over it with your sponsor and then also your junior sponsor 
who is another student in the program who's a little bit further along and kind of slightly responsible for you and your very specific like big brother kind of a role and then maybe called out to a house topic to talk about how Miranda's lying like there's no way you only like gave oral sex to one person like you like look at how big your mouth is that's not from a palate expander you whore you know so maybe you could make an excuse for why encounter therapy isn't so bad or maybe you can say well you know shoveling snow or doing any of these physical labor things aren't really that terrible but children have been hurt they've been maimed and they've been killed at some of these places so talk to me about that so our school is pretty tame um in comparison like I'm not saying at the time we should we right no but I mean in comparison like I I'm serious in comparison like if you look at WASP um, Tranquility Bay, Casa by the Sea, these programs. Um, even Bethel Boys Academy, they're using electroshock prods on kids. They're sicking dogs on kids. Um, they're using, you know, belts with different names. They lock them up in dog cages out in the rain for weeks and in the sun in Jamaica um, and Mexico, and they're doing stuff like this. Um, and those are regular, but those are things that are allowed to happen. Now, there's also the abuse level where there's a ton of sexual assault, including six active open cases through the New York Child Victims Act that's open until August 14th. So if you were in a program in New York and you were sexually abused by a staff member or another student in it or anyone in New York, um, you have until August 14th on that one. Um, And then, yeah, kids die. I mean, look at Martin Lee Anderson. He was a 14-year-old boy in Florida. The NAACP even tried to back him up. Um, He stole his grandmother's car I understand it's Grand Theft Auto, you guys, but like I've stolen my mother's car and he stole his grandmother's car and went and got candy. And then his family thought it'd be a good idea to do this scared straight, like you mentioned earlier with this Maury Povich jazz, right? And so on the first day that he's in a Florida boot camp, he is literally murdered on film. Like you can watch it on YouTube. There's a documentary, there was a court case, everything. And They literally, like, there's six people around him, including a nurse and deputies and everything, and they're beating him up. They're sitting on top of him. He's this skinny little 14-year-old boy, and there's a nurse there. They put some sort of, you know, chemical and a cloth over his face, and he, like, gets knocked out, and then they continue to, like, brutalize him. Uh, Aaron Bacon is another one. There's a film about him. And and there's a lot of the sexual abuse, too. Like, that's a really, really big thing because a lot of these programs, they were sex trafficking these kids, you know. Um, and so there's that aspect of it as well. Like Mount Bachelor Academy, outside of the we can all agree is abuse. But like this is one of their like little therapies, if you will. If I was raped by my dad, I'm going to dress up in a little girl's nightgown. They're going to pull in one of the boys from the boys side. I'm going to give him a lap dance while I and everyone chant to me what a little whore I am and I'm daddy's little whore and won't you please like do whatever to me. And we're going to reenact this stuff in front of everyone. These are these are children with their prefrontal cortexes like totally freaking out. Like can you imagine the brain damage? Um, and these are sexual like known sexual assault survivors because the kids that wind up in these programs are usually emotionally either vulnerable or traumatized to begin with for them to even be in a position where we're either talking about this or they're the vulnerable target of these marketing practices. So our school was, I would say, um, at the time that I was there from 2002 to 2005, pretty physically tame. Like there were 
put people I saw got restrained, you know, and thrown in isolation and um, other things like that. But uh, that's because I think they had evolved at that point. Um, I'm talking about our program specifically. Like in the 90s, I know for sure kids got like beat physically, like thrown in in situations like getting, you know, rolled up into a rug and having to be there as a punishment for like a day or two days. Pun- punched and, in the face, you know? Punched, yeah. I, I Like I think there was probably like they, like our school was, I think, more of the kind of like emotional um uh, the emotional side of it, the kind of abuse. But yeah, I mean, these programs, I'm, you know, Aaron Bacon comes to mind where these wilderness programs, they, you know, they make you hike for like eight hours a day. And Aaron Bacon had a, um, a rupture in his like spleen or something. I forget what he died of. Um, I just watched the film again. And, um, like the kid was like, I can't breathe. Um, my stomach hurts, like had all these complaints for days until finally, like a week later, he just like collapses and dies in the middle of the desert, you know, and you know, this kid never had a chance. And there are these programs operating to this day, doing these kinds of things, this like manual, this like a physical labor that they have to do in these boot camps, particularly, you know, kids just dropping dead because they're also just ignoring their requests, right? They're like, oh, I need a drink of water. I'm dehydrated. I can't go any further. Oh no, fuck up, buddy. You'll get a drink of water when we hike to our location in five hours. Like this is unacceptable. And, um, but I would say our program was was tamer on the physical abuse side. Although I know there were some instances, I think those I don't I don't know if anything's going through the courts because the Child Victims Act explicitly says only sexual abuse, not physical, not emotional. So they kind of fucked that up. But our school was dealing with heat from the government by the time we were there, though. So our school's different. Yeah. And for people who are familiar with Elon, um, there's an awesome, if people like comics, uh, Joe versus Elon is online. It's a graphic novel by Joe, Joe Nobody. And they had a freaking fight club, like literally a fight club. Yeah. I know for myself too, that um, I uh, was diagnosed with scoliosis prior to going to the family school, like three years, maybe a year or two. I forget. I was told by my doctor to go to the to see a chiropractor every month or every two weeks. And I was consistently going to the chiropractor and getting treatment when, before I was in the school, I had told them, I was like, you know, I was told by my doctor, you know, you can verify with my parents that I needed to, you know, get treatment for the scoliosis. Um, I mean, it turns out that I should have been braced and I should have had way more in, uh, uh, I should have had way more invasive treatment, but I never saw a doctor for my scoliosis until after I left the school. You know, they would always just say you're lying You're this is bullshit. You just want to get off campus. You know, they're, they wouldn't even really take you to the doctor if you had a complaint about something. There was like, there was, you know, which is abuse in its own right. So what did you talk about when you had time alone with other kids when you were in the institution? Remember when I said before about how your prison, like the people you're in prison with were also like your prison guards? It was kind of like that. Uh, When you first arrive, you're sort of in this culture shock and you're partnered with someone who's like um, been there a while. She's a more senior member. She 
um, you know, boys were partnered with boys, girls were partnered with girls. And, you know, they kind of showed you the ropes. You kind of had like a grace period. I think it was like a three day grace period, or maybe it was 24 hours. I can't remember. And, you know, you were shown the ropes, given the rules, blah, blah, blah. In some ways, I know me and Miranda, when uh, Miranda was there for much less time than I was, we instantly took to each other and we instantly got put on blackout because we were, we became besties and they didn't like that. (laughs) But like, there were some people there that were also your abusers that you went to the school with, you know, they would, the, the relationships you had was kind of like mentor student, but they weren't always, a, it wasn't always a positive relationship. The minute you did something wrong, you were immediately like, or if you wanted to tell your, um, we called them junior sponsors because they were other kids, not a staff member that you were immediately, like, if you told them something in confidence, like, oh, I'm having uh, sexual thoughts about so-and-so and and the boys in in my family, they would immediately, like, tell on you and be like, Meredith's having sexual thoughts. She needs to get brought up at the table. And and then it would just create, I feel like it would just create more stress and more, like, it was kind of abusive in its own right. And there was a lot of that. I Like, especially with the girls. Oh, my God. It was like, a, it was like a freaking, um, it was like mean girls times a thousand. <laughs> That's how it felt for me. It was, I think, just as torturing. The conversations that you had in private, you could not have non-program conversations. So nothing about your life before you showed up exists. So you can't talk about bands. You can't talk about this time that you went hiking somewhere. So there's really no conversation about you that exists like in a relationship with your peers. And then it's also super strategic. So like Meredith was like, uh, you know, if someone was like, I had impure thoughts about so-and-so, like I'm crushing on this guy. You would do that to call, then because you were going to call yourself up at the table. So it was positive program. So how far deep did the shaming go? Did you find yourself even when you were outside of surveillance, punishing yourself for the wrong behaviors or the wrong thoughts? And is that something that you still carry on with you? No, I, Meredith says, I wasn't there very long. I am the least abused among us. I'm fine with that. And I did not drink the Kool-Aid. So that, for that reason, no, I had my own experience because I had a boyfriend and I'm not a cheater. So that was my own thing, right? Um, But I do it now. And so that's the problem with these things is like for people like me, I stayed on my own side and I had my own back in this experience. And when I was alone in my mind, I kind of like created a relationship with my now 33 year old me, which is where I'm at, about how it's cool. I'll be out of here someday. I'll be over this someday. This is what I'm going to do with my life. Whereas now that I am 33, now I hold myself to a very unrealistic expectation like that's a self-shaming self-inventory. And so that's the issue is the voice in my head isn't the one that was there when I was 17 that was supportive that ha- like was like, we got this. It's the voice of my table topics where like, of course, my life is super fucked up. Of course, I did this again. Like, I'm just I'm a failure. I feel like, oh, Mar- Miranda didn't drink the Kool-Aid for sure, but I sure as fuck did. I even went so far as to like tout the program after and to like I had a friend when I went to college who became the guardian of his like six brothers and sisters and there's a whole bunch of messed up shit that happened within their family and he was looking to send his sister who was perhaps you know really had issues with drugs and things and he was looking to send his sister to a similar program and I was like 
boy, you got to send her here. And I, you know, like I had totally for many years up until I want to say only two or three years ago. No, longer than that. I just wasn't ready to speak out about it. But like I had so become brainwashed by it. You know, they really forced your religion upon you. Whatever your parents wanted you to practice. You went to church every Sunday or temple every Saturday. And it was like, you and I became so like religious where I would like pray every day and I would like I became I became something I um I am so different from now and yeah it was like I had totally become brainwashed until I realized maybe when I was like 26 27 like that I was that this is all bullshit that I was just like abused and it was around that time that like, you know, we all started coming, we all started like waking up and, you know, you would see things online. And even though I would see like um, testimonials and, you know, the things that Kenny and John Martin Crawford and Liz started, I would even look at that and I'd be like, come on, you guys like that. We all turned out okay. Right. But now I look at that and I'm like, I have you know, I have a completely different outlook on it. And we're all sort of like still, I think a lot of us still, even we're getting messages to this day saying, wow, I haven't talked about this in forever. I pushed it down, didn't speak about it. Now you're talking about it again. And I'm listening to your podcast and it's like, yeah, I really have to deal with these feelings. Thank you so much for helping me. And it's like, that's kind of, you know, I don't really hold myself to any standard. Like I kind of just live my life now. And I figure, you know, I, I, I've been on my own so long, even after the family school that I've had to sort of just adapt to this like way of life, but I don't like, and, and I don't hold myself. I didn't hold myself to any standard there either. I feel like, I feel like I was constantly like, when I was there, I felt like I was in prison and I just had to like say yes to everything and just do what they said. So I would stay out of trouble, even though when I did what they said, I would still get in trouble. I kind of feel like I, um, a lot of people now will tell you like, oh, I, oh yeah, I lied about that. I lied and told them that I got raped, even though, you know, like, or I lied and I told them that I did these bad things just because I didn't want to get in trouble because the whole idea of this institution at the family school was to be honest. So I would be honest and I would be like, no, I've never had sex. No, I never did drugs. And they would be like, yes, you did. And meanwhile, I'm like, you know, the whole, um, I guess the whole underground thinking was to just lie to get, you know, to get through and to graduate and to just get out of there but I did not do that and I just told the truth about everything and I still got tortured and I still got like I was still just like brutally abused and even though I did tell the truth and I did what they asked me so yeah so how does that affect your sense of right and wrong and justice well in the moment it's supposed to affect you where you believe all powers external but also accept responsibility for it, right? You have to have that powerlessness. You're not in control. And it affects me now in the same way, you know? Like, I, I believe, like, so some people look at some of the things that survivors of these uh, institutions think of like a paranoia. But in reality, with CPTSD and stuff like that, our trauma really happened. So I'm not expecting something unreasonable to manifest in the future. Like, I know it, it can and possibly will. I think for me, it's like, 
now I just think everything I learned there and everything I used to believe about God and everything I used to believe about their rules and their philosophy is all fucking bullshit. Are you kidding me? I have a completely different philosophy on life. I have a completely, I have completely different political views, personal views. My philosophy now is that like, I just want to put and do good in the world. I don't care. Like, I don't believe in God. I don't, you know, I don't believe in, um, the kind of philosophy anymore, you know, you know, following a leader or anything like that. I'm just my own person. I'm just trying to do my own, live my own life, do good in the world. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, uh, I do not like, uh, believe that I owe anything to anyone or that I have to like bow down to anyone. I just do what, what I want as long as I'm being a good person and, um, being compassionate, um, to everyone in my life and also giving back because, um, I'm not like a rich person, but I do have my life so together that I do like to give back and volunteer. I'm, I'm an activist. I am involved with local government here in where I live in New York city. And I, I just don't, ascribe to any of that bullshit anymore. I have totally figured out my own life. It's been really hard. I've taken so many different odd paths in my life to get to where I am and to find my belief system and to develop my own beliefs and what I think is right and what I think is wrong. And I just think that like, I don't, I just am trying to be a good person now. And you know, I was abused. Those things were in my past. Yes, I still suffer from PTSD from it. And it's still hard for me to talk about and relate to some people. But I think through this podcast and through the past couple of years, reaching out to different people that I have been survivors with that we've been able to talk through things, I think has helped me. And I just don't think that I... I was abused at this institution and brainwashed and I just don't, and none of it I agree with, none of their philosophy. I've, I've lived my whole life the opposite way. I don't ascribe to any religion and I just, I just do me. So how are these institutions regulated? Well, they're not, is the answer. Uh, These are private institutions. A majority of the ones that we're concerned about because they're abusive, are also religious institutions. Like in the U.S., while we may be, hooray, conversion is outlawed in this state or this state, and it's only a few, I assure you, and we're talking specifically conversion, we have religious exemptions, right? So it doesn't even matter because these programs that are religiously based don't have to follow any of that. So there's no monitoring. We don't know which kids are sent where. There are a handful of states that are passing legislation to have some level of monitoring. Like I think in California, if they send a kid from California out of state to another program, they need to report it to California. Um, Alabama passed some, but this is because of like local real life hero vigilantes. You know, these are that we have a, you'll have a local sheriff who has a local school and the corruption locally and even all the way up to the White House won't solve his problem. So he'll get involved with the news. They'll do a documentary. They'll save these kids. They'll put these guys in prison for 20 years. You know, when we have kids die in the program, like, you know, we mentioned Aaron Bacon, his parents did take it to court and they did win. And the 
these guys literally got community service. At least three people were found guilty of the death of Aaron Bacon. And they got, like, literally slapped with some community service. So they're not really concerned about if monitoring were to come into place. Uh, there has, since Congress, if people are really into this, 2007 is when the investigation starts. 2008 is when you have, like, a lot of the testimonials and you get to hear the findings of the GAO investigation. Um, and at that point, George Miller tried to start a federal bill to create some sort of oversight regulation and standards in residential programs that house American youth. Um, but it really has never gone anywhere. It just changed hands. Adam Schiff has it now. It's just sat. Um, so it's really not in their best interest. I mean, if you look at these relationships, right? So Mitt Romney, everybody knows who that guy is, right? So when he ran for president both times, the guys that were his financial co-chairs are literally one is the guy who runs WASP and the other one was, you know, I think it was Mel Sembler, right? So that's straight um, and kids incorporated. So um, these these roots are pretty, pretty strong. And um, we've had lots of class action lawsuits, lots of attempts. But as long as the political members that, you know, are engaged in this money flow, this remember $2 billion a year and what we know about, right? Um, there's no invested interest in them allowing us any oversight. Yeah. And like, you know, there's no... They they wouldn't want to pass a bill when they're you know wreaking the uh whatever when the when the when it benefits them and I just want to say like it's so funny to me that the most strictest laws that we have in this country are in the southern state of Alabama which um I, there's some pretty if you operate one of these programs in Alabama it's really hard to get by the regulations that they passed I believe in 2016 I forget recently it's just funny to me that the like one of the reddest states in the union has passed. Like the and the only state has passed a really good bill trying to get these programs regulated, and yeah, no other state really has anything close to that. And of course, not the federal government. Not when Mitt Romney sits as a senator in Utah, one of the worst states for these programs. I mean, Utah has a million of them, and they're really concentrated in Utah. So, yeah, when you have the members of Congress uh, benefiting from these programs, why would they pass any legislation? Per Utah, programs that we're talking about in Utah make up almost or over, There's you can look it up on the internet, I'm not a statistician, it's over 41% of their gross income as a state, right? And a lot of these are not religious, especially the wilderness boot camps and whatever, so they are paying taxes into these systems. Okay, so how can we stop these places? Number one, we have to have these conversations more often and more publicly because I'm not sure that the general public is even aware of this issue. And certainly, I'm, I'm not sure they're aware of how deep this goes. I mean, this is historically part of American culture. You know, since the 1870s, we had residential programs and assimilation of the indigenous peoples, right? And we've got kids in cages on the border right now, and hundreds of thousands of kids in the programs that we're talking about. So until Americans, and, and this goes for every country individually, we're from America and we're just trying to push stuff here until we like get honest about this conversation and realize that it affects everyone. I mean, as an example, our president went through the New York Military Academy, right? Like there are articles, if you want to go on the internet, I think one of them is called like the men who made the man behind Trump or something, um, where Trump himself talks about the physical abuse and all this jazz, but, you know, he touts it as making him stronger, right? But I mean, it affects everyone. Um, so what we can do Number one, general awareness. Number two, we can push to, firstly, the Adam Schiff bill needs a lot of reform before we actually push it through. So we need to push for that. But I think we're looking at state by state 
Um, and, and then we're just, you know, we're, we're going to have to figure this out as it goes, because up until now, traction has been slow. I mean, advocates have been working on this since the eighties and the nineties. There's just not many of us to go around that are willing to listen. We have talked to a lot of survivors. Myself was not willing to talk about this up until recently, even two months ago when we first started our podcast. And I was I even as against the abuse as I am was hesitant to talk about it. We don't have enough survivors that are talking about it, which is a shame because there there's a certain level of shame that comes with it. I understand that. Uh, more survivors talking about it is what's going to help. You know, the reason that the child victim act child's victim act got passed is because of people working on the ground, like Liz Ionelli, these other people, um, working to, to lobby these legislators to say, Hey, like these people were abused. It doesn't matter that it was 20 years ago, you know, um, like let us have our day in court. And that's one step in the right direction. The fact that that bill you know, the fact that we have this year period um, to be able to get justice under this Child's Victims Act. Um, you know, there's things that there's things that we're trying to do, like this podcast I'm hoping is going to kind of like people will listen to it and they'll kind of like think, oh, maybe I should speak out about it. Maybe I should like there are other kids. There's a kid right now, millions of them, hundreds of thousands, if you will sitting in these institutions, getting abused. There was a video that came out just um, a couple of days ago, another survivor from the Circle of Hope in Missouri, you know, a video of this, the, the, the guy running it, telling the other girls to beat other, other girls should they do something wrong. And it's, you know, it's going to take us speaking out. It's going to take us trying to talk to these legislators. Like, I know there are a lot of people that are survivors of the Freedom Village in New York City that are bound together trying to get, trying to talk, to use their connections, to talk to legislators, to get these bills passed. It's not enough at the moment. There's not enough of us speaking out, but I think, you know, just like the Boy Scouts, just like uh, Cosby, you know, it takes, David didn't, you know, take down Goliath in a day. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I don't know what other metaphors I can use. It's just, we- Yeah, but it burned down in a nightmare. (laughs) So like, let's keep it in perspective. Yeah. I think like it's just going to take more people speaking out. Um, you know, uh, I'm hoping that more people speak out because I think that's if any, any no progress gets done if we just like sit by and let you know things happen. We have to, we have to do something. And this podcast is one thing: making phone calls to our legislators and telling them this is an important issue. There's movies. There's 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 things on the forefront. There's a documentary coming out in May that's I think going to blow shit up because there was a certain celebrity. I don't know if I should say anything. No. There's a certain celebrity that was in one of these programs and this person is coming out with a documentary exposing it. There's books coming out. There are things coming to the fold. And I think it's just going to take time and consistent effort to speak out and to try to lobby these legislators to even though it's hard because it's like these people are directly financially benefiting from these programs. So um, you know it's um there's a lot of work to do uh i don't i don't have the exact answer but i i just am gonna try to do my best myself with this podcast and with everything you know with all the authors that have talked to us and with you putting us on your platform you know so what was it like for you when you were finally able to go home and what happened afterward 
for me, I, the reason I didn't stay very long is because I went in at 17 and on my 18th birthday, I chose to walk, which I expected to be a seven mile hike through the wilderness, you know, to some podunk town in Hancock, New York. I'd practiced, you know, the phone number I was going to dial in the payphone for like nine months at this point. Right. <laughs> so I was ready. Um, and, uh, I went down to breakfast after chapel and it turns out that, um, I hadn't been living with my parents when I was sent there. I was sent through like a tough love referral program. And so the woman that my parents had given me to that I'd been living with who didn't want me there had been waiting out there since midnight the night before in case I decided to walk. And so, you know, I'm not going to cry on your podcast, girl, but like <laughs> legit, you know, um, and then life after, well, you spend this whole time waiting to get back to the real world. And you kind of feel like in when you're there that it's a, a, a detour outside of time. Like I was there for around nine months or so, and it felt like years. It feels like the biggest, most significant part of my memory bank. You know what I mean? And, and the days felt like weeks when it was happening, you know, shoveling snow all day long from one soccer field for no reason to another soccer field for no reason <laughs> didn't feel like a 12 hour shift, you know what I mean? So, and then when we get out, it's like, okay, cool. I'm going to go back to my life with my friends, back to school. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to join the Peace Corps and work for Amnesty International. And like, that, that's, that's what I prepped for. I went to Catholic girls school. Like I've worked for this, you know, I took Latin for four years just so that it would look good. And I could read signs in other countries. Like this is going to be great. But when I got out, the world had kept on going and I didn't recognize it. And I was alien to it as well. And my friends had moved on. And, and even if they hadn't moved on and even if they wanted to support me, I was so different now and I couldn't relate to the same things and, and the same people. And so I wound up homeless and I wound up actually using drugs and I wound up getting pregnant, not wound up like this wasn't me. Right. But I don't think I would have associated with the people I associated with or made the choices I made if I wasn't literally, you know, detoxing off some strange like behavior modification, social experiment in the mountains for the past nine months, you know? And so and then the far reaching complications were, you know, after I got on my feet with life, like I looked at this, like this was my the boarding school that I went to. Um, and my parents until this day are like, we really wish you'd finish your program. Your life is, you know, you've got issues in life because you didn't finish your program. You know, we spent your college savings on this and the money your grandfather left you so that you'd be better and you didn't do it. And so it was like my uh, uh, the way that I framed my experience needed to be completely unpacked and I didn't do it until my 30s. So and that's something you're going to see with survivors of trauma, um, especially with programs like these, is it's usually a decade to 15 years before we begin to hold anyone else accountable for our experience because we were troubled teens, broken teens, bad kids. And so we deserve to get punished, right? That's what everybody said. And, and we didn't have another way to look at it. And now we finally have trauma-informed professionals and EMDR therapy and DBT therapy that's recognized, you know, in, in like a normalized capacity. And so, you know, life's different now. Yeah. I think for me, I, I was there almost three years. I did 
like I shouldn't have been there as long. I did an extra year of high school, but I was forced to go through the program. Like I was too scared to walk when I was 18, to be honest. I was a fragile human being. I was, didn't have the balls Miranda did at that age. I would never walk. I was just a, I don't know. I was like a frigid little thing. And I stayed there till I was almost 19. I graduated from not only the program, although just barely, uh, I think they just were like sick of me at that point. And I did graduate from high school. I got a diploma just again, just barely. Uh, cause it really was not good at school. Life for me afterwards was kind of not idyllic. I mean, I just kind of, I went off to college, the one college I did get into and went to a huge amount of debt. Cause it was like, Oh yeah, I need to go to this college. Cause my parents said so. So I'll just go here. And I kind of didn't make any of an adult decisions because I was still like, even though I was 18, 19, I was still like this traumatized 14 year old, just kind of walking through life figuring it out, graduating from college in the middle of an economic meltdown, you know, not working for years, literally being broke for most of my 20s because I couldn't get a job. I decided to major in musical theater and become an actor, which I'm still doing, which is great because most people don't last this long. But like I was trying to navigate like how to be an artist while also dealing with this PTSD while also like you know, dealing with crazy family things and like going from job to job and like never having um, up until a couple of years ago, really a solid foundation. And I mean, uh, I think all of that really taught me a lot of lessons kind of wandering around in my 20s, going from like my dad's house to my mom's house, like job to job. But like, because now I'm really solid in what I want out of life. And I'm really solid in, um, you know, my living situation, I have really adapted to being this kind of gig worker and like, go it like, um, you know, I'm re- I, I have an agent, I have a manager, I, I am a filmmaker, I am a content creator. I have all these lovely things about my life now that really was really hard to go through to get here. I'm glad I'm here. But like I it just like there was a lot of bumps in the road for me much not not quite to the extent of Miranda like I did not I was not homeless I did not go revert to drugs of course I do I have done drugs but I'm not a drug I'm not a drug addict um I don't really drink alcohol like our paths were like mine was just kind of like I was floating around um I'm lucky that my parents were because I graduated were willing to like help me. Um, and they were willing to be a support system, even though albeit not much of an emotional one. Um, but yeah, like I, it was really a stumble for me. It was really like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, um, I'm just kind of figuring it out. I have no money. I, um, my parents never gave me any money. Um, not, you know, like in dire situations. Yes. But it was like very much you graduated girl. Now you can go figure it out. And there was a lot of bumps, you know, I'm now just kind of, I, I stopped. I was like, I'm not going to go. I'm, I'm done with therapy. I'm done with those drugs. I'm done with everything. Um, and now I'm back in therapy and, um, which is great because like I was on this kind of like, I'm not, I'm done with that. I had my, I had my, uh, fixation when I was a kid, you know, I'm fixed now. I don't need to go back to that. I don't need to deal with my mental health. And it was only a few years ago that I realized I really, I really do. So what's the best part about being out? I often wonder what it was like had I never gone in. I wonder if I, I wonder if things would be different. I wonder, because I, I still think like, 
when I originally got out, I, I would go, I went to college immediately and I, you know, it was really hard for me because I constantly felt this like shame of I'm this bad person and I'm, uh, like I have mental and emotional issues and it was still really taboo back then. You couldn't like post on Facebook, like, Oh, Hey, I'm taking a mental health day. And people would, you know, you just couldn't say that kind of stuff in 2006, seven, eight, even. Um, so I think I just kind of like, I hid that part of myself and just felt a lot of shame about it. And, um, I still kind of, feel a little bit that way like um I was actually just telling a new roommate of mine about the podcast and about what happened to me and she was like like it was still really hard for me to even tell her about that part of my life I feel like it's still hard to kind of I don't know like when I tell potential um like boyfriends it's like I don't I don't really know that anybody understands what it was like and what's like what it's like living post family school too um, it's hard. Like, I still f- kind of feel like I'm in a small prison. It, like, that's a, that's a part of my brain and a part of my life that just, like, I can't go back to a lot. But I will say, like, I'm, like, so glad for my freedom, you know? I, I remember feeling, like, so, like, I remember just feeling like I was a caged bird. And then, like, 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 I know what it's like to live in a prison. Um, should I ever go to prison? I'd like be very familiar with it. Getting out now, I have my freedom. I have my, you know, I can walk out my door and do whatever I want now. But like, there's still some like, form of prison that you're in, especially now that I've deep dived into this world, um, more so than I ever have getting out. Um, so yeah. All right. So the best part about being out for me is that when I wake up in the morning and to that awful alarm from that trailer in the Catskill Mountains, um, <laughs> which happens still to this day 15 years later, if I scream into the void, I wake up. And for what felt like an entire lifetime, I didn't, I couldn't wake up from that. And so that is the best part. The best thing I can take from the program is that I know who I am in some really intense, you know, potential hypotheticals, like some serious, like handmaiden's tale, black mirror shit. And so knowing who I would be with my peers and with myself in that kind of a circumstance does give me a certain level of relief about with like with my self identity. Mm -hmm. So what do you ultimately want everyone to know about the troubled teen industry that they don't already know? I don't think that any one podcast, even if the podcasts were entirely devoted to this concept, could get all the information out. I'm hoping, you know, your listeners like are a special kind. I'm one of them, right? So I am hoping they do some research for themselves because there are so many freaking rabbit holes with this. Um, so what I do want to make sure everybody understands is that you know, this is still happening. This is still happening globally and on a really big scale in the U.S. Um, no matter what it says, when it says WASP closed, those programs are still open. Same people, different names, people just cross state lines. And this is a global thing. You've got the mother and baby homes in Ireland. Um, you've got the residential homes with the indigenous peoples pretty much everywhere. So we do hope some of your epic like investigative crusaders will join us on this. And I also want to say that you probably know a survivor. Like, you 
probably do. Like that kid who was a little weird, you know, when you took your niece or your nephew to middle school for the first day. I mean, he or high school or whatever, he might be the kid that gets sent to one of these places. So, you know, maybe 10 years later, you like look at your niece and your nephew or whoever is a young person now um, and you see you know, that kid again, you're like, maybe he's better. Maybe he's not so weird, socially awkward, whatever. Like my point is, is that everyone probably knows a survivor. And, um, you know, I think, I don't know how to get people interested in like doing the research and seeing these things other than, you know, um, making a big documentary or just some big thing happens, you know, like the me too movement with Harvey Weinstein, you know, that seems to be on everyone's periphery. Right. But like, I, I will just say that, you know, a survivor and they have a story and I don't, I just think people should think about that. Yeah. Watch the last stop film, watch fix my kid, hop on the YouTubes, watch the ABC special, a boy called Lucas or any of the 60 minutes, any of those things. There's plenty that we don't even know to share. Meredith and Miranda, thank you so much for being here to tell your story. Links for this episode will be included in the show description. Thank you for listening to On Belief, a podcast about cults. I'm Karen Geyer. You can follow me at at K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R or follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter at OnBeliefPod. And you can contribute to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer. You can also visit our website. It's just OnBelief.com. So what do you ultimately want everyone to know about the troubled teen industry that they don't already know? So what I do want to make sure everybody understands is that, you know, this is still happening. This is still happening globally and on a really big scale in the U.S. Um, No matter what it says, when it says WASP closed, those programs are still open. Same people, different names, people just cross state lines. And this is a global thing. You've got the mother and baby homes in Ireland. Um, You've got the residential homes with the indigenous peoples pretty much everywhere. So we do hope some of your epic like investigative crusaders will join us on this.